When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Pod Shotcast. Pod Shotcast. That's what we should the call shot it. Podcast. Shotcast. That's it. Uh, and I even have not had my coffee. And uh, Dave has poured half of his over his laptop, so we're off to a good start this morning. Um, my name is Joe Dyer, uh, and I am here as ever uh, with Dave Milner. Hello, Joe. And with Grace Tame. G'day. And Charles Firth is away writing, so we get to play up in his absence and generally diss him. The boss isn't here. This is good. Yeah. So it's been quite a week, as ever. Um, people have described uh, Albo as having, you know, the very bad, terrible, no good weekend from hell with the gloss coming off him, um, as ever. Kind of Murdoch is back in the press. Uh, and we're leading up to the coronation of our new monarch and our new head of state <coughs> next week. So, Grace, what are you, are you looking forward to uh, King Charles III officially becoming our head of state? Uh, is that a rhetorical <laughs> question, Joe? If you heard that what noise before, think? that was Grace Dry reaching. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's kind of we've had this sort of weird interregnum period where he's been the king, but he hasn't had the uh, the crown officially placed upon his head. Um, and there's been all sorts of rumours about what's going to be taking place. But we did, I think, we were told that there's going to be a um, a call and response where we get to actually pledge our allegiance along in the same moment in real time with all of the other subjects from the Commonwealth around the world. Oh, Too God. exciting! Look. Oh God, can you just imagine some of those homes in you know Brighton and Turak and. Some of those living rooms, my God, that's a sad Tim sight. Tim Smith to style yeah. being obsequious. <laughs> Tim Smith will definitely do that on Saturday. I think we all need he to will. process that. <laughs> he will kind of cosplay the, the subject. Grace, are you going to be pledging allegiance to the king? Look, I'll pledge allegiance to the castle, um, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the film? Yes. <laughs> no, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> the vibe look, of the thing. Um, as an advocate for child protection and for the rights of fellow survivors of child sexual abuse, for fellow men and women like myself, um, I think it's important to remember that the opposite of love and adoration, admiration is not actually hate, it's indifference. So I won't be personally swearing anything, I won't even be swearing under my breath, literally. There are many reasons to renounce the soft rule, if you will, of the British monarchy and call for Australian independence and become a republic. If you want to just look at the track record of uh, colonial invasions and genocide and the transatlantic slave trade and 
racism. Which The Guardian has done a very good job of actually bringing out and articulating yes. all of the, the kind of historical links to the slave trade. That sort of level of detail I hadn't seen before and wasn't fully aware all of. All of these things, all of those things that I just listed are well documented um, from a myriad of sources, not just one. Um, mm. uh, personally, though, if we want to just zone in on one issue, and this perhaps has been strategically covered up, child sexual abuse and the royal family's links to it. And I'm not just talking about Prince Andrew. I'm talking about people like Jimmy Savile, Ralph Harris, Lord Mountbatten, who is the late great uncle of Charles I. And very favourite, very favourite uncle. Well, he so, – so Charles was the protege of Mountbatten. I only know this because I've watched much of The Crown – I do think I know who you're talking about. And that is a very strange narrative of Lord Mountbatten. That's very whitewashed. um, Sure is. Oh, I have no doubt that that's true. But it is like, is it the guy from Game of Thrones? Charles Dance? (laughs) Gets the like the creepy vibes across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very fine actor, Charles Dance. So have either of you heard of Kinkora Boys Home? Yes, I have. But only relatively recently. Um, I would say in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, actually. Because I was talking to you. Because I told you about it. So, Grace, why don't you tell me about it again? Explain, because it is a shocking tale. Yeah, for listeners who are unfamiliar with Kinkora Boys Home, it was established in 1958 in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Um, And supposedly it was a residential care facility for vulnerable, uh, homeless, orphaned young boys and one of the um, housemasters was a man named William McGrath. Um, he was a Northern Ireland loyalist, um, an evangelical Protestant priest and a known homosexual. So the other two main housemasters um, were Joseph Maines and Raymond Stemple. It, it was later discovered um, after a number of army intelligence officers, two main army intelligence officers made reports to local police after allegations of abuse at the home were made um, and the uh, the reports were quashed. They didn't go anywhere. Um, and <laughs> interestingly, um, one of these army intelligence officers, um, specifically this guy was, um, his name was Colin Wallace, was framed for manslaughter and served six years in prison. And then in 1990, the Thatcher government had to apologise to both the uh, UK Parliament and to the public for his wrongful incarceration. The home actually closed down in 1980. The three housemasters that I listed, William McGrath, Joseph Maines and Raymond Stemple were all jailed for sexually abusing 11 of the boys. There was uh, an investigation conducted in recent years, um, the Historical Institutional Abuse Inquiry, and that found that at least 39 boys over the period of its, its you know, being, being open um, were abused. And the main headmaster... This guy, William McGrath, um, was suspected to be an MI5 
informant and while this look it looked like the stuff of conspiracy in the time that it was open a number of politicians visited and there were all these cover-ups and attempts to just quash investigations and then in October last year a man named Arthur Smythe uh, he waived his anonymity um, in the process of launching several lawsuits against a number of institutions and he identified Lord Mountbatten as um, the man he alleges abused him twice at King Cora. So what's the status of that? Is there any kind of, is he suing, what what, what is the status of of his allegations now against Lord Mountbatten? Well, Lord Mountbatten is dead. I mean, he died in 1979. Um, The story goes that um, the IRA blew up the boat that he was on. Yeah. Lawsuits are against a number of institutions. Um, yeah. Uh, he's, he's suing for damages. Those are, as I understand it, still on, ongoing, those, those lawsuits. So are there any allegations that it, this was known at the time? I mean, do, do we know anything about how widely known? Yes, as I said. So we've got Brian Gemmell as another Army intelligence officer who made a report to police. He was trying to blow the whistle and his experience was his attempts to seek justice were blocked. He was quoted as saying actually when the BBC interviewed him in recent years that essentially that there were people at the highest level involved in this operation. When this historical institutional abuse inquiry, the HIA as its um, acronym, when, when that was conducted, there were several Kinkora survivors who spoke out in around 2016 who expressed their hope. Um, one of them, uh, Clint Massey, said, you know, there was a cover-up, there was state collusion in what was going on at Kinkora. It should have been stopped. Um, there were people that wanted to stop it and they were blocked. What happened was they looked into, as often these inquiries and commissions and reports do, they looked into um, the abuse itself and the perpetrators themselves but not into the collusion or suspected collusion and corruption at the higher levels within the bodies beyond the actual location and that's what's I personally find is really interesting. You have to really look 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 further. And mm. and there was a there was actually a book that came out in, in 2019 according to the Irish Times. And when they reported it, they didn't mention the name of the book, but they've got two another two boys. They're both Sri Lankan, both de-identified, and they reported also being abused by Mount Batten. They reported being driven from King Cora to hotels and being abused by Mountbatten, but only identifying Mountbatten um, after seeing his death reported on the television. And what, recognising pictures of him? Yeah, recognising pictures of him and footage of him on the television after he um, died. But it's quite interesting because the name of that book wasn't um, mentioned. However, I know that there is a book that is specifically about um, the King Cora scandal, written by an award-winning Irish journalist um, called Chris Moore. You can't get access to it in Australia, which, again, very interesting. All of this stuff is 
is, uh, you know... Is it available in the UK yes, and it's, Ireland? It's, it's available in the UK and Ireland. Another piece of the puzzle is that the HIA, this investigation that was conducted in recent years, it, it, it agreed that there'd been all this egregious abuse. You know, there'd been suicides um, from some of the boys in the 70s, but it said that there wasn't any state collusion, but then it also found that most of the documents, if not all of the documents, had been um, destroyed which is mm. often a big clue. And on what basis did it um, say there had been no state collusion? Did it actually actively investigate that and come to some conclusion? No, or because... that's all a very unclear... So that there's been... This is not... The HIA was not the only investigation, as far as I understand it, um, and every investigation has had um, very limit, a very limited remit. Um, yeah, so the terms of yeah, reference terms are deliberately reference- set up such that yeah. investigations into those sort of murkier areas and to the upper echelons of British society and power are left, yeah. You're yeah. saying these royals I mean, are is, kind of shifty. Well, I think the royals are kind of shifty um, and that's what's kind I'm of been interesting. So I think this area in particular because, you know, there was almost a canonisation of Mountbatten that happened being the favoured uncle of Charles and someone who had been alleged to have, you know, really acted as a father figure given the distant kind of cold parents that he apparently had. So he was really, you know, in the the popular mythology, was an important figure uh, in the royal family and certainly in the life of Queen Elizabeth and particularly now King Charles. And so to learn that he was potentially engaged and allegedly engaged in criminal activity that destroyed the lives of many young children... You know, I mean, it seems extraordinary that there hasn't been further investigation into this, but there does seem to still be in Britain this kind of the haloed effect of the upper echelons of the aristocracy. Um, And we're seeing some of that now play out um, because Prince Harry is now just throwing truth bombs everywhere because he doesn't care anymore and he's decided that actually people are more important than institutions um, we, we he's out. He, he chose, chose love, love. Um, and not just love of social media. We're kind of seeing some of the deals that were done behind the scenes uh, between the royal family as an institution and the media, um, so that some of those scandals that um, around the time of the phone hacking scandals didn't come into the public eye, and they just basically accepted money to keep things out of the press. Um, so that kind of collusion is is clearly you know, still there. Yeah. Um, and, and these are the people yeah, who apparently, in, in you know, UK, could be our head of state. This, yeah. In the who UK are press, the way the royal correspondent ring works is remarkable. It's basically you you employ, you know, newspapers have their own royal correspondent and that doesn't mean anything other than these people get drip-fed exactly what they should say directly yeah. from press officer inside the royal family. This is not a, you know, mark of prestige. This means you are the a stooge of these institutions. Yeah. If ever you see royal correspondence, stop listening to yeah, that person. Yeah, what's interesting about Kinkora to me is it's sort of the, it's the chicken or the egg factor. We had, you know, when you look at a character like William McGrath, it, it, it's hard because I'm, I'm coming at this from, I'm try, I'm always trying to, externalize all this internal knowledge and explain to people in the right order but you know he was a he was a known pedophile and so you've got a situation where there was a there was a pedophile ring there 
you know, when you've got such allegedly active suppression of information, was it that there was a pedophile ring going on and, um, you know, the state or, you know, security services got wind of it and saw a purpose for it? Or was it orchestrated from the very, very beginning if um, William McGrath himself was indeed, you know, as it, it, as I understand it, yes, he was an MI5, MI5 agent. So, you know, was it that it fun- functioned as both a, a brothel? This is my understanding. This is my interpretation. Um, you know, I allege that, you know, that, that it functioned as both a brothel and as part of a, a honey trap for acquiring blackmail. And this was quite common during the Cold War. Like we're looking at 1958 to 1980. This is, this is the Cold War era. This is not just, you know, in Ireland where tensions were. Um, were high between the Protestants and the Catholics, you know, and William McGrath being a being a um, a, a Protestant mm-hmm. extremist evangelist, you know. So you've got the boys being exploited literally as human bait and staff and vis- visiting politicians as well and pal- paramilitaries, you know, given given access to not only forbidden fruit but tempted with that homosexuality, which was also such a grave offence at that time in history, and then being compromised. So it's like these offenders certainly are to blame um, who directly perpetrated the offences, but then also the covert puppet masters who potentially, you know, I personally believe helped design and orchestrate. So you're saying that there was this sort of honey trap whereby there were these young boys were used as kind of, as you say, bait for powerful people to come and perpetrate crimes against them. And then those people, those powerful people went back to their lives and were then blackmailed to provide information or become informants in different ways, um, in a pervasive way throughout the upper echelons of British society. Yes, yes. I mean, it was... And that was a deliberate strategy that was used by the, well, by MI5. Yes, and this was not, King Cora was not the only example of this. Yeah. Certainly. Not during, at, like at this time in history, this was not the only example of this. I mean, this was a dirty apparatus of biochemical warfare. Um, and we saw this throughout these hotspots when we consider, especially what the United States were were up to at the at the time. Well, I mean, compromat is is a kind of strategy that was used mm. by secret service yep. organisations around the world um, in you know different ways, whether or not it was you know female prostitutes, which whilst were illegal and had the potential to bring shame on people, is a yep. kind of a different measure and not the kind of the same criminal violent act that we're talking about when we're talking about child sexual abuse and you know perpetrating crimes against minors in the same way. Um, and so this then is the favourite uncle of our soon-to-be-crowned King Charles. Um, one does wonder, given that there does seem to be more information coming out about this, whether or not – I mean, I whether or not this will be explored in a more prominent way um, and whether or not kind of some forms of justice can be visited through – civil legal proceedings which have now been launched. Yeah, and I mean you you also got the relationship that he had the the deferential relationship that he had with or to uh Jimmy Savile um who was mm. awarded a knight mm. a knighthood. I mean and throughout Jimmy Savile's kind of extraordinarily um prolific yes. criminal 
career, there were what is just sort of devastating to see at every turn. There were these schools, um, residential boarding schools mm-hmm. for particularly vulnerable children, whether or not it was um, blind children or destitute orphans or at every turn there was this sort of smorgasbord of young children provided for these kind of criminals uh, and, you know, they, they had seeming impunity as they kind of cut this criminal sway through the country. And, and let's be clear, Joe, who's providing them? Well, this is the thing. You know, the, I mean, from, look, Grace would probably know more, but a lot of these schools, it, you know, they, Savile was giving money um, and thus the headmasters and headmistresses seem to take the money and then turn the blind eye. I can't speak to, with Savile, whether or not there was a more kind of coordinated strategy or is that he just bought access for himself and then had these friends in very high places who also were prepared to take a blind eye. I mean, whether it was the BBC um, or indeed, you know, Charles was friends with Savile and indeed uh, Rolf Harris. He Rolf Harris painted the Queen's official portrait, for Christ's sake. These sort of links are everywhere, I guess. Here's an opportunity to explain this very confusing dichotomy that people struggle with when it comes to the outward-facing presentation of a lot of very calculating, manipulative perpetrators who, when when people who are, you know, even people who are close to them um, find out um, and their initial reaction is, well, that was such a nice guy, they they mm. engage a lot of a lot of these um, you know often very high profile um, very high powered well connected um, offenders engage in philanthropy in um, mm. altru- supposed altruism and that is a part of their cover story and they are very charming they are very ca- charismatic I was speaking to my mother yesterday um, who you know she came from. Um, the, the working classes, she uh, worked in a myriad of jobs and she's had a very colourful life. One of the things she used to do was to practice her, she used to be really quite shy before she ended up oddly at a local television station, first working in um, pr- just production and then she one day she interviewed to be um, a, a news anchor. But she to get her uh, confidence up, she used to go to the local prison down here in Tasmania and debate with the prisoners. Oh, God. And she would sit. I know. She would not that Keep you on your toes, certainly. And, and, what? Yes. And she, yeah. she, she was talking really? to me about this yesterday. She said. Do, do they let you well, into prison oh God, for debate? We used to debate. And when I in South Australia, like we had a just quick diversion. We, the South Australian Debating Association Sorry. had an adults <laughs> debating championship. So when you left school, but not out separate from the universities. And one of the most successful teams in that were a, t- a debating team of prisoners. And so the debating teams used to go in and debate prisoners. Separate, I mean, that's a slightly different thing because that was an organised competition in which they participated. Yeah, and mum mum was saying that she would, you know, she would spend time with these people, not just during the process of the, de- the debates themselves. She would interact with them afterwards in the cafeteria. She would receive feedback from some of them. She said she was speaking to one man who was giving her advice afterwards and, encouragement and he said some you know you know he was really kind and 
um, you know, he said, oh, you've really got to keep it up. It was really lovely. And and she said, well, you know, but this guy was uh, in there for, you know, like a double murder. And she said, look, if yeah. I can be confused by, by this, you know, by this this man's kindness and, and, and generosity and just willingness to connect. She said, I can, you know, you feel that connection as just a human being. There. Well, I think you one know? of the things that was sort of devastating to learn this week and then you ask yourself why you're so surprised was there was um, more information came out about Jeffrey Epstein's extraordinary networks and progressives all around the world's kind of heart, hearts broke a little when we learned that Noam Chomsky had also uh, had a number of meetings, like many meetings um, with Epstein, and this was after he had served his, you know, almost home detention that he did. So he was a convicted sex child sex abuser, um, and that's to your point, Grace, about the way that philanthropy mm. was used. He was an incredibly wealthy man and he deployed his wealth um, mm. to disguise what he was doing and whilst he lined up the the other men who he then presumably by careful conversation, investigation, um, worked out who were interested in joining him in his pedophile ring. But, yeah, Noam Chomsky was apparently had a number of meetings with him, which was about trying to get money, again, like the headmasters and headmistresses of these schools of the vulnerable in the UK, trying to get money for their institutions. They, they, and when, they are masters of it. I shit you not. The, look, it is really important to point out, so when we're, talk, okay, when we're talking about child sexual abuse, I want to make this point really clearly. There are children who are abused by adults, recidivist adults who are, you know, and I don't use this term lightly, who are psychopathic. <sighs> and those children who have been abused, who've been told by these, thankfully, very few and far between types, these children don't know that what has happened to them is wrong because they are children. And by virtue of the experience of childhood, which is the process of integrating, they then perhaps perpetrate abuse because they've been sexualized and corrupted. They perpetrate abuse because they think that that is a loving thing to do because during the grooming and offending, they've been told that, that they are um, being subjected to a loving experience. Now, these children who perpetrate abuse are in a different category. There is more hope of redeeming these children. And, you know, we should give these children at this point in their development treatment and support instead of punishment and shame. The recidivist, much, much older, calculating psychopathic sadistic abuser who may actually claim themselves that they have been a victim of abuse and there are ways to tell that they haven't um, because when somebody is disclosing usually it's an uninterruptible thing where they'll you can see that they're going into a state of a flashback you know like that's a different that's a different kind of a an abuser mm. and we really need to have this distinction made yeah because these these types of offenders are so good at crafting an outward-facing uh, narrative and an outward-facing character that is remarkable at galvanising sympathy 
and the sympathy that they pull draws the sympathy away from the the legitimate victims, mm. including those younger children who may who who may themselves have been abused, and and in the cases where they themselves act out, are not actually understanding what they've done, and then we see those children criminalized um get stuck in the system and it's you know it's all just flipped on its head I don't know that's just my TED talk for the day (laughs) yeah well I bet I mean I think the thing is is what we've learned about today is are not those children that uh warrant our sympathy and are potentially um can be helped through treatment is we're talking about powerful or rings of powerful people Mm. who are using their privilege to perpetrate crimes and now we're talking about our head of state having been related uh, to one of them and indeed view him as an important uh, father figure in his life uh, which Not not to mention Andrew not to mention Andrew indeed his brother who he seems Charles does seem to have some sympathy for um, so it's interesting as the coronation approaches, uh, there are both kind of institutional um, reasons why it is ridiculous um, that King Charles is our head of state. There are national, in, in, and, and by that I mean this notion of an aristocracy generally, that by virtue of birth some people sit above others, uh, which is kind of madness. Um, then there are national reasons. We are an independent nation. Why are we still beholden to a country um, on the other side of the world? And then there are very personal reasons why the nature of the people who occupy that institution at the moment, and I think that goes to the points um, that you have been making today, Grace. So it's kind of bizarre, and yet here we have this sort of conga line of um, people from the Prime Minister down uh, going over to, as he said, Albanese said very explicitly, he will be pledging allegiance to King Charles on Saturday. We've been asked to do the same if we uh, are so inclined. At least at least we didn't have to pledge allegiance to Kyle Sanderlands a few days well, ago. Well, you know, the thing is, is that... He's having a fucking good week, isn't he? Like, Albo didn't have to do that either, and yet he did. And that, to me, is extraordinary. And we all know why he did. It's because um, Carl is one of the DJs on the... or broadcasters on the highest um, rating show here in New South Wales, and that's why he did it. Yeah, he, he talks to a, a target demographic of the dickheads mm. in Sydney, and that's, you know, that's the blo- voting block that Albo needs to secure. I, I get it politically. I understand it, but I also think, you know, in the same week where you come out and tell the nation that you, you, you're acknowledging explicitly the job seeker isn't enough to live on with dignity and decent mental health by saying it does need to increase for a tiny little cohort and we're just going to pick people above 55 and everyone else below that can just keep sucking on it. To do that in the same week that you go to Carl Sanderland's wedding and then fly over to the UK to pledge allegiance to King fucking Charles, 
My God, could we have a progressive party in this country, please? Look, it is extraordinary uh, that they have... I mean, I don't know whether or not it was just the case of, you know, putting the flag up the flagpole and seeing what happened. Um, I thought it was demeaning of the Prime Ministership to have Albo go to Carl Sandlin's wedding. Um, Chris Minns was there as well. He apparently didn't stay as long. Albo stayed late into the night. Um, that said, is it any more demeaning when we have the just procession of coalition politicians from the Prime Minister and the Treasurer down who go to Lachlan Murdoch's Christmas party? I don't know. Um, why do we make a distinction between those two people? Um, what, because one's a bit of a bogan and a dickhead? I mean, he's more explicitly outrageous um, with some of the things that he's said around homosexuality, around women, um, around um, fat people, all of these things. I don't know. Is it because it's more explicit and go? and vulgar possibly because in the end they're still just we've got politicians being supine and obsequious to powerful media figures but what is interesting um, I think when we have this you know the endless policy debate about what is and isn't going to be in, in the budget um, which is now only you know a few well a week away um, this idea that you should pick off people <coughs> in the way that they have and so port you know great that they're finally recognising um, the mistake that Gillard made when she took single mothers off the single parent benefit and put them on to what was then New Start. But, you know, they're saying, oh, we, so we may take it back from 8 to 12 or 14, but not back to 16 where it should be. But this job seeker thing, I mean, I just find it extraordinary that after, you know, decades where young people have been just sort of thrown to the scrap heap, um, discriminated against at every turn, the intergenerational discrimination that takes place in this country around wealth um, in, at every policy turn, that even job seeker, like even people who have no wealth at all and are potentially staring homelessness um, down the barrel at age 55 plus, so it's not to say that women, you know, the biggest cohort of growing homelessness, we've all heard that story. It's not to say that they shouldn't have an increase in job seeker, but to recognise that for that group of people and to say to young people um, after everything that they suffer and continue to suffer from, from discrimination to mental health issues um, to, you know, lack of housing to lack of job availability to education costing, you know, just multiple times more um, than the boomers had to pay, many of whom had free education to say you it's okay for you to stay in poverty there is no logical justification for it at all and it's either just you know we'll do what we can in this sort of ridiculous piecemeal way and privilege older people because that's what we reflexively do or it is a divide and conquer thing it is to say it is saying we'll split the vulnerable up and so we'll try and get some of them to support us more. And the young people who are never going to support the coalition, well, fuck you, we'll just factor you in. And I think it's not only is it outrageous um, and appalling um, and immoral, but it's also, you know, politically stupid because here we have the Greens waiting with open arms for young people to come flocking to them, this growing demographic of people. And if the Labor, mm -hmm. you know, basically alienates and ostracises them, then they will suffer for that at the ballot box. And so they should. And let us hope that the white hot, the incandescent rage which came out when this sort of balloon was flown will be enough for them to think again 
in the week that they have left or the five days they have left before they have to send the budget to the printers. I'd hope so. And I mean, I wrote about this last week. I wrote an article called What is the Point of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese? And, you know, largely about this sort of thing. And I got criticised quite a little bit on Twitter, A, for including sort of a youth versus older people angle. And I do get that criticism a little bit because this is, you know, this is an eternal thing. I understand that young people always feel this way about old people. Mm. But the difference is the policies put in place right now are just exacerbating it to such a ridiculous degree. I think the stats are in. I mean, I think that's to, to that point... Yeah, yeah, we have the data on this. Look at um, Greg's work from The Guardian. He's been really good on this subject. Um, it's just all there. And so there does need to be some teeth and some pushback. The other thing I got criticised for, which I just thought was remarkable, was people were like, did you go after Scott Morrison as hard as this? <laughs> and, have they met just, our friend Dave I, I tweeted it. <laughs> I, t- I tweeted last night, like slightly incandescent with rage. Motherfucker, I made an yeah. art form of criticising Scott That's, Morrison. You came to prominence <laughs> on your criticism of uh, Scott Morrison and we loved you for that. But, you know, this is uh, – look, and there are obviously a group of rusted-on Labor supporters, and in my past I would have been one of them, who – don't think we should be criticising the Labor Party whilst they're still in their first term or if at all, then there's another group who are still so relieved that we no longer have Scott Morrison that they don't want people to go too hard on this government because, thank Christ, it's not... Yeah, there's a little bit yeah, of a it's shush, not shush, the last shush, you'll one. wreck it kind of thing. This is going to pop if you don't say these things and it's just not No, how it and works. I also do think, um, and this point was being made a little by Amy Ramikas on Insiders this week, is that everybody seems to still think that we, you know, we are a... There isn't an acknowledgement, actually, that a lot of the Australian public did vote for real change. They didn't just vote to have a more likeable prime minister at the helm. They actually wanted to see real action on climate change and they want to have a more socially just and inclusive Australia. And and this is a huge thing behind the teal push. And I know that they do get called, you know, greener libs kind of thing and that is... You know, perhaps that's a fair criticism of a lot of them, but I think that negates the main point that what these people actually are is free of party discipline, free of party caucus. So many, like all the most empathetic Labor backbenchers probably hate a lot of this stuff, but they're absolutely useless because they just have to vote with the party. Although I will say um, that my opponent in Boothby, Louise Miller-Frost, now the member for Boothby, was one of a few backbenchers who came out and who signed the open letter from ACOS and have now been agitating from the backbench. This is a widespread view. Absolutely. They will still vote with the party. Well, they will still vote. but um, And that's the main point of difference, I think. People see that the Teals will actually vote on their conviction on all of these issues. That is completely true. Um, Look, we don't know what's going to be in the budget yet. Uh, I think that there's a lot of positioning which is going on, um, as there always is in the lead up to it, going off to print. Um, And as I say, let us hope that these sort of strong positions being put eloquently and emphatically around particularly assistance to the most vulnerable. There's, you know, even you've got um, Henry, Ken Henry coming out and saying the idea that increasing job seeker might risk inflation is just ludicrous, particularly because most inflation is coming from supply side issues or indeed inflated profits. So I think 
there is this sort of universal position which is being put by everybody except for the government and the opposition at the moment. So let's see. Um, you know, I got criticised on Twitter for putting a strong position. They're saying, well, you don't know what's going to be in the budget. And I think the reality is is that we do have to push back on these things, otherwise there's an inevitability about what's going to be in the budget. So, the whole so let's see. They need, they need to the feel leftward pressure as well. That yeah, point it, of it is. And if they're only getting yelled at by the crazies in News Corp, then that would be the only pressure they feel to drift that way. It seems absurd that progressive people wouldn't want progressive critique of, you know, supposedly the party that's representing their interests. I, I do not understand that at all. Well, next time we meet, the budget will have been handed down. The king will have been crowned. Um, so there'll be, as ever, a lot more to talk about. <laughs> Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. Thank you to Grace and to Dave. Um, maybe Charles will join us. I should thank our equipment people, um, but I can't remember who they are. So Charles will probably add that in later. Um, it's road microphones, I think. Oh, right. There we go. And, and ACAST network. There we network. go. There Dave we go. Stepping, stepping up. up. Dave. Thank, Thank you all. Yay. Thank you for joining us. Um, and you'll hear from us next week. Yay. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.